Well, folks, how are you getting on? This week's interview is the fifth episode in The Disruptors, a mini-series presented in collaboration with Fleet Financial, where we sit down with some of Northern Ireland's most disruptive industry leaders. Today's guest is certainly no exception. Carmel McKinney is the chairperson of the Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service. After studying English and French at university, Carmel went on to become a teacher and one of Northern Ireland's leading experts in the area of dyslexia. This journey eventually resulted in her becoming the principal of a school and receiving an OBE for her work in education. Later in life, as if all that wasn't enough, Carmel pivoted into a career in the public sector, sitting on and advising many boards, some of which where she was the only woman out of 35 people, before becoming the chairperson of the Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service. The impact of her work has been recognised through a number of highly prestigious awards, including the Institutes of Directors, Non-Executive Director of the Year Award, and the Guardian Public Services Diversity and Inclusion Award. <laughs> Carmel is also an acclaimed Irish dancer and has taken part in competitions all over the world. Her claim to fame in that department of her life was dancing for the US president on St. Patrick's Day. Absolutely unbelievable. So plenty to get through, plenty to cover. And in today's episode, we talk about the importance of giving it a go and trying new things, the role Carmel's family has played in her success, and how to really change the world. Hello, I'm Carmel McKinney, and you're listening to Best of Belfast. All right, folks, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson, and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Baths, Barclay Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like you, who pledge as little as £1 a month to join the Producers Club, get invitations to live podcasts, and support us on our journey to 100 interviews. Big, big thanks to all of you who make the show possible, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Gavin Wall, and of course, the wonderful Ormo Baths team. To find out more, get in touch or check out our back catalogue of over 80 incredible interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. That's it for me for now. It's time to jump straight into our conversation with this week's local legend. Really hope that you enjoy. You, what did you have for breakfast this morning? This morning I had porridge uh, with cream over the top, which actually <laughs> depleted the whole uh, healthy piece, a load of double cream and tea and a bit of toast. So, yeah. See, I'm trying to put weight back on in after being in hospital. Mm. Lost over a stone. So, Flip. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I was then to begin with. Yeah. yeah. But um, so I'm working on it. I'm trying to eat all these carbs. Yeah. How are bit, you bulking up? Well, you know, I'm back with my trainer. Okay. Uh, um, so I'm bulking up with all this sort of as much pasta as the family can throw <laughs> down my throat. You can only eat so many bowls of ice cream. You can only eat so many, uh, how would you describe it, everything that is full of chocolate. You can aye. only eat that for a certain period of time. So you're, you're seriously trying to put on weight then? Oh, I. Yeah. Like it's, an, it's difficult, it's an issue. It's difficult because wow. I've always been very controlled yeah, in weight, yeah, yeah. very controlled in what I ate. Uh, fit 
all of those things. So to now pile on the pounds uh, is proven to be a bit of a difficulty. Nightmare. Yeah, Can you not get one of those like protein shake stuff? Yeah, I'm sure got, the guys are on. got those as well. Shall yeah, I? they're they're minging. Yeah, they're, they they're not horrible. good. Like. But it'll take time, but I'm getting there. But on four pounds, so I suppose it's a start. Cool. Most people are trying to lose four pounds in Unislim and I'm trying to put four pounds <laughs> on. Radio. Cool. Calm, are we ready to rock? We are good to go. We rolling all, yeah? We are rolling. Cool. Okay. All right. <laughs> You ready to rock? Mm-hmm. Great. Carmel McKinney, thank you very much for being here. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. You were an old principal, weren't you? I was. Well, uh, not an old principal. <laughs> a former principal. That's uh, right. In, former, in principal. former times, you in, were a principal. In a former life, I was a principal <laughs> of a school. Well, yes. you have given me some homework to do for today's interview by a mistake by because mistake. your favorite book you said was the great gatsby absolutely and it is also my favorite book oh my goodness so i actually in around this interview i actually went and reread it and do you know what i have to thank you because i haven't read it for a couple of years yeah. and i thoroughly enjoyed yeah. it well matt i am glad i gave you a bit of homework <laughs> because you will be right up to speed with the beauty of the Great Gatsby, unbelievable, and all the underlying pieces in there mm. as well, which sometimes I think as readers we do miss. I initially read the Great Gatsby not because I had to read it, mm. but because I wanted to read it, and then of course it was on the syllabus for A level, where you're then forced into a position where you have to sort of look in under yes. uh, the bonnet uh, at sort of some of the key elements. But the movie, of course enhanced uh, the book very much with Robert uh, Redford and Mia Farrow. But yes, it is my favourite book of all time. Wow. Um, I mean, there is obviously so much in here, but what is it about it that makes you go back to it? I think what makes it, well, it is the beauty of the book and mm. the beauty of the way it's written. But secondly, it explores a number of key elements. I mean, the American dream and everything that goes with it. But underneath that as well, Matt, is the whole gender piece mm. and the whole role of women in the book and how they are treated and even the way how Gatsby treats women as well. So that would be pretty key for me because mm. of the gender piece and also to social inequality, uh, inequality the haves and the have-nots. The Valley of Ashes. The Valley of Ah, Matt, you have done your homework. <laughs> hey, that's an A star. So all of those are explored in a subtle way. Uh, but if you look at society nowadays, those are some of the big, key, mm-hmm. big issues, big themes that we have as a society now. We still have major inequality. Mm-hmm. We have major gender issues. We have major haves and haves not, mm-hmm. particularly within the education system. You know, we talk about we have a wonderful education system in Northern Ireland, and we do for the people who succeed. Mm. But what about the trailing edge? So I don't know whether you want me to go down that road or not. But yeah, The Great Gatsby, my favourite book of all time, followed behind that with a non-fiction book, which is Ernest Hemingway's Death in the Afternoon, which is about bullfighting, which I am a conscientious objector to. Uh, but a friend of mine said you need to read the story of bullfighting, the history and all of that that goes with it. And it is a fascinating read wow. as well. 
I'm going to make a, a wee note of that. You may give me yeah. another one. So and Hemingway we, and what's it called? Death in the Afternoon. Okay. And then sort of finally, because mindfulness is the whole gig at the minute. It's having its moment, isn't it? It's have, yeah, The Monk Who Lost His Ferrari <laughs> is another one. And it's about a guy, a very wealthy young man who has everything, who just decides, you know what it is, I've had enough of this life because of the fakeness in it. Yeah. And he sells his Ferrari and he goes off to find himself. Mm. And, you know, mindfulness, you know, how many mindfulness courses are there nowadays? Umpteen. Um, Umpteen. Do they help? Only if you go about it Mm. in the right way. Loads of books, uh, loads of videos, but it also, Mm -hmm. it's written by Sharma. So that'd be another one would be at the bedside too. Yeah. (laughs) So quite diverse. Quite diverse. Yeah. Um, as a, as a child, my father brought me to the Ormer Road Library. Uh, reading was very much part of our home. And two daughters, and my dad was an avid reader, so we went to the Ormer Library every Thursday evening. So wow. we grew up with this incredible love of reading. Uh, I had a tendency to gravitate more to non-fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very much a thirsty child in terms of learning a little bit more about things, whereas my sister was very much into fiction. Mm. So I have to hand it to my 91-year-old father, who is still fit and well, for inculcating in both of his daughters an absolute love of of literature, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing better to go into a bookshop and look at books. <laughs> forget about the iPad and forget yeah. about the Kindle. There's nothing better than to turn the page of a book. That's cool. So you can probably see from that, yeah, I would have a great passion for reading. And against that, even in my own history professionally, I have worked with children who could not read. Mm. Uh, and for me to make a difference to those children, to bring them to a point where they can read, mm-hmm. trust me, that's what makes the difference. Wow. And so when you were formally a principal. <laughs> I know, Did you come into education with a subject? Did you ever teach or did you just come in at that level? Well, firstly, I have to say at 18, I decided I was going to defy everything uh, from my pr- professional background of both parents. And I was going to sail off to British Airways to be an air hostess. There you go. Wow. So, hey, I rocked over to London and uh, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, did all you've got to do. I was a fluent French speaker, so I thought the uniform would suit me brilliantly. <laughs> Came back to Belfast and said to mummy, you know what it is? I'm not going to bother doing my A-levels. <laughs> I'm heading off, at which point it was, well, it was actually communication on the spot, really. Uh, but then I sort of grew up and I thought, I don't think this is for me. So my degrees in English and French. So wow. my primary subject areas are English and French. Uh, taught in a boys' grammar school. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think probably in my current job, that's why I don't find it daunting. <laughs> working, you know, I worked that's true, in, yeah. I worked in uh, a boys' grammar school uh, and most of the staff were male. Thoroughly enjoyed it. High-achieving young males. Uh, but within me was something... Against those high-achieving young males, there were lots of young males out there who were hard to teach and hard to reach. So I decided I would opt for a less-travelled road, to to quote Robert Frost, and I deviated to the left and took up a post in an area of very high deprivation and barriers to learning in um, West Belfast and had a wonderful career 
working with children and young people who just didn't have the same start in life. Uh, and then became an expert in the field of dyscalculia and dyslexia and moved on from there to become a principal in an area of high social deprivation. And I loved every second of it because if you make a difference to one child in an area like this, you have succeeded. One example I tell friends of mine is my sister and I were in the house of Fraser And this lovely young woman came up to me and she said, Miss McKinney, do you not remember me? No idea who she was. And I sort of thought, tease it out a little bit, obviously a former pupil. And she said, sure, sure, you taught me how to read. Wow. And I thought, you know, you couldn't bag that anywhere. Yeah. Uh, So that's how you make a difference and Mm. give it back. So a great career. Loved every second of it. Of course it was hard. Of course it was difficult. Of course the staff had to be more vocationally orientated to actually uh, get children like that uh, to succeed. Worked a lot with traveller children. uh, Succeeded in getting the first traveller child into a Belfast grammar school. Wow. Um, And, you know, you look back at those days and you say, yes, it was. you had to work extremely mm. hard. I'm not suggesting if it had stayed in a grammar school, it wouldn't have. But, you know, you're pushing against uh, a lot more barriers in areas like that. But it was a wonderful career. OK. Uh, and I enjoyed it. And then moving on from that, I then went into the sort of non-executive roles. OK. I became the chair of an educational library board where that was a huge influencing job. Uh in, I then moved into further education and then I completely changed lanes uh, to where I am now as the chair of the Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service, the only woman in the boardroom. But <laughs> hey, let's hear it for women. So, yeah, so changing lanes. And that was a huge decision to even make mm. to actually do that because you do say to yourself, well, you know, it's a uniform organisation. It is... Mostly male. There's only 12, 12% female in it. And maybe the, I was a bit of a risk taker. I thought, well, I'll apply for this. It's a ministerial appointment. You go through a competitive process. I felt the interview went extremely well. When I got it, I thought, hello, is this <laughs> actually for me? And it has been for me. And um, I've enjoyed every moment of it. And I am absolutely the brand of the Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service speaks for itself. Yeah. You know, they are really are incredible people who do incredible things. And they are unsung heroes mm. because I watch them there, the firefighters on the front line, they just go out and do their job and go home. Mm. But nobody sort of applauds them. You don't see them in social media saying, we had a great day there. True. Look at what I did. So, so, yes, I love the job. It has its challenges. Mm-hmm. We're in a period of austerity across the public sector at the minute. So there isn't the same money. Uh, we're within the Department of Health. The Department of Health is stretched in terms of its budget. Uh, and we've got to make do with what we've got. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very lucky in that my board member colleagues who are working with me are absolutely wonderful to work with, all male. Uh, and... Um, the senior officers I work with are all fantastic. So, but you have to stay on the top of your game yeah. because at the end of the day, you are accountable for the delivery of the service. But it has opened my eyes to many things. I've had tremendous opportunities to travel abroad to America, uh, to be in the parade with the Fire Department of New York and St. Patrick's Day. Nice. Those are sort of, you know, 
pretty hip and trendy things to do. <laughs> that said, you are representing the brand. Yeah. So, yeah, it has been great. Cool. Uh, hard work, but great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of, it's a diverse kind of a career, Matt, you know, sort of from teacher, well, potential air hostess. Would be <laughs> Often when I'm on a British Airways flight now, I say that could have been me. Could have been. And my sister would say, Carmel, you would not have lasted a week <laughs> in British Airways. So... I've been very lucky in my career. Uh, I've worked hard, very proud of my achievements, and there are many. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to keep, it's a role of continuous improvement within yourself as well. I would be very self-reflective in terms of analysing my own performance. And I suppose in many regards saying to myself, well, could you have done better at that? Which I think is healthy, don't get me wrong, that we say that. Uh I could have done better. I sometimes look at social media and I say, wow, if I, there's just no way I would be so opinionated to write that about myself on social media. (laughs) So we kind of have groupings of uh, people who perceive themselves uh, to be working at very high levels. And I'm sort of going, well. There's just no way I would put that on social media. That will be for others to judge. Uh, And luckily, the evidence is there to support. I'm very much into diversity and women in public life. We need more. Uh, We have rehearsed the story that there aren't enough women in public life. We know that, yes. Yeah, we get it. So let's move on from that and say, well, what are we actually going to do about it? So certainly within my own organisation, I would be working a lot with the females to actually encourage and grow that pipeline of female leaders for the future. So and I think much more work can be done there. Yeah. to encourage, I mean, there are reasons why females don't go into leadership role, childcare, family, caring and all of that. But we've rehearsed that over and over and over and over again. We all know there aren't enough women in public life. For me, as a female leader, it's, well, you're absolutely right. What are we actually going to do about it? So an awful lot of work is being done in the Department of Health, for example, uh, to look at and encourage females to apply for public appointments. And I totally contribute to that. And Judina Leslie, who's the Commissioner for Public Appointments, has done great work. Uh, but there still is a road to travel Yeah. Uh, with that. But, yeah, very passionate about females. That said, what I must caveat it by saying, I believe women should be in the boardroom on merit. Uh, what we don't want to do is have this kind of token female uh, that we're actually meeting targets. So yeah. I would be very strong on that where we're all there on merit. And hopefully in the future, we will stop talking about female leaders, male leaders, and we'll just talk about leaders. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Yeah. We're not there yet. So that would be one, yeah, one professional goal I would have to continue on that road. I have lots of goals, but that yeah, one, that's I, a big I bet one. you do. That's a big one. <laughs> The other one is to retire somewhere quietly <laughs> and read my books, Matt. So. Yeah. So I want to go back, okay? So from my perspective anyway, I haven't just sat down and just met you. Your career in education, you seem to kind of have the Ferrari. You were making a big impact, a tangible impact that you could see very, very clearly. What made you decide to sell that Ferrari and, and move on? 
Well, they got a good price for the Ferrari. No, uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. I think there comes a time for all of us, if we are properly rooted in ourselves and knowing ourselves, that we say, there's a different road for me to travel now. And in my case, it was a road less travelled in that who would have gone down that road in mm. terms of changing lanes out of education into a uniform organisation. But I think what was within me was I had done everything I could. Mm -hmm. I had been an influencer and in a change policy at policy level. I was extremely good at what I did in terms of teaching and delivering learning. I had the output from that. But something said to me, Right, Carmel, you've done all that. Now, where to now for you? So really, if my mother was still alive, she passed away two years ago, she'd say, Carmel, you always liked something that was challenging. Yeah. Even as a child, you didn't take the easy way out. You always put yourself into a challenge mode. So I saw it as a challenge. And in actual fact, the way I viewed it was, well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. There's a, you get a maturity as you go through your career as well where it's not the end of the earth. I mean, failing isn't a tattoo, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's how you deal with it yeah. and how you move on from it that matters and that demands a maturity within your own personality. So I knew it was time. When I saw the advert in the paper, I thought, number one, I thought I could definitely do that. Mm -hmm. And number two, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And number three, I'd already chaired two major public sector bodies, of which one was a 35-man board <laughs> with 14 politicians on it. <laughs> and I earned my spurs working with politicians. And I think that's where my political savvy came out of, mm. uh, because you have to be politically very savvy working mm. with our politicians, who I have to say were brilliant to work with. Brilliant. Um, and then I went down the further education road. So I had a big, punchy CV. And with a lot of this, it is, does the face fit? Is it a match for the organisation? And I think probably at that stage, the organisation was looking at, well, maybe we need to maybe embrace change. Uh, and yeah, I was really pleased to got it. And I was shocked that I got it. I thought, <laughs> well, hey, ho. Uh, we're <laughs> off uh, and it's going to take a while for these people to get to know me and vice yeah. versa because going in as a chair when you're not a firefighter so you know so I was going out round stations and they were giving me obviously all the technical language and I was going hmm. so that <laughs> took a while to get into that but it's important about growing that respect that there's a mutual respect for one another's role and I believe we have it and I mean People I work with are just incredible people mm. uh, and uh, I feel very privileged to work with them and hopefully they find me a, well, I think they find me a firm chair, but a fair chair. Uh, um, yeah, so it, it works all around. Mm -hmm. It works all around. But yes, the Ferrari was there, I've driven the Ferrari, but there was another calling and it was really about continuing to challenge one my intellect two my capacity to walk into a room where I knew absolutely no one mm. and that's pretty tricky 
And three, to actually read myself into and become not an expert in, because you never will be, become au fait with the way a uniform organisation and the culture of a uniform organisation is very distinct. And uh, I work very hard on it. And yeah, I've loved every second of it. On a bad day, I don't love every second, but I do. I do. <laughs> and it's all down to the people you work with as well, Matt. Yeah. So, yes, a very prestigious career. And got my OBE, of course, as you know, from that. But I've gone on to win many major awards since that for my role as a female leader, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. Mm. Uh, the last one being there in June, the Times Diversity Champion, which I wasn't expecting to win. Brilliant. So, and it's actually not winning it for me. You know, I've got everything I need. It's about winning it for the brand. Mm. And uh, so that a woman sitting out there can say, well, there's a very ordinary woman, nice woman, you know, goes out for a pint like everyone else who has managed to do extraordinary things. So if you can role model up on that, then I'm that's good for me. And I try to work with younger women who are coming through the system to one, manage their expectations that they're not going to hit the big, t big time too quickly because sometimes I have found in young women I've been mentoring that they think they're going to hit the pinnacle very, very quickly. Life's not like that. Uh, as I would say, there's no elevator to success. You've got to take the stairs <laughs> and fall down them regularly. Um, so it's sort of inculcating that in young entrepreneurial women as well that it takes, it takes time. Uh, you don't get there overnight mm. and to be patient with it. And that's why I think experienced female leaders are so important in terms of their role as mentors. Now, by mentor, I don't mean hugging the other person to death because mentoring another person for me means you're a critical friend. And sometimes you have to say things, well, actually, I don't think that's going to work for you. And it's the capacity of the other person to actually accept that from you. Not everybody accepts that. You know, constructive criticism needs to be a two-way process. Yeah. And I think not always. Some people take it as personal criticism. Uh, I probably did in my young career as well. Took it all personally. But I am deeply committed to young women moving through the system, managing their expectations, whilst at the same time saying, keep going. Uh, you know, get up after the knock. We've all been knocked. Um, you know, we don't have time to cry into the beer. Get up and move on. Mm. Uh, we've all had to do it. We've all had to do it and things don't land on your lap. Mm -hmm. That said, it's important as you make your go on with your career, Matt, that you remain professionally humble. If you were to say to me, what am I not overly keen on or what irks me? As a senior female leader, it's arrogance, um, probably because I was reared in a home where arrogance just wasn't on the agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very important to maintain professional humility as you go through your career path. There is nothing more irksome than arrogance. Mm -hmm. And arrogance is fueled by kind of an emptiness. So it's important, I think, in the mentoring that that is brought through as well clearly that you have to remain professionally humble uh, I mean the most successful people I have known in my life you wouldn't have even known they were in the room uh, my first mentor who I remember dearly who's now deceased was the most understated man you ever met in your life 
uh, and I love people like that. Tell me about him. He was a man of great... His name was Sean Dorn. Okay. And uh, he was a man of huge integrity to begin with. And he spotted... He, for want of a better word, he spotted me early in my career. And he was the one who started to encourage me, you need to start looking outside the classroom. Uh, not forcing me, but he would have come in and said, would you think about... You're very interested in specific learning difficulties. Would you think about... Uh, extremely supportive and was able to deliver a hard message without offending and without being rude. Um, When he walked into a room, everybody knew he was in the room and he was a listener rather than a talker. Mm. And I learned a lot from him to listen rather than do all the talking. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would, looking back on my career... He was probably the man, he was the man, who actually set me on my journey. And I've been lucky enough to have other mentors along the way have helped me too. And incidentally, they've all been male. Nice. I have never had a female mentor. Yeah. I've always had a male mentor, probably because of my career path Mm -hmm. and who I worked with. And I sometimes, you know, you know very quickly when you meet someone who's a potential mentor if it's going to work. uh, And you know if it's not going to work. Um, But mentorship involves saying hard things in a nice way and Sean Dorn said hard things in a nice way. He actually put me on my journey uh, to where I am now and I'll always be eternally grateful to him for that. Cool. So mentors like that, they have to see something in you. They do. Because, you know, people of a high caliber and people who are successful, their time is limited. The amount of people... They can mentor is limited, and so they have to be quite selective. Yes. What characteristic do you think they saw in you that made them think, I'm going to invest in this person, I'm going to double down on Carmel? I think in this particular case, as a, as a young professional, uh, I would have been, I would have asked a lot of questions, not in an offensive way. Mm-hmm. So he would have probably seen me at meetings Uh, where I'd have said, well, why do we need to do it that way? You know, have we ever thought about smaller groups doing it this way? Have we ever thought about outreach work with hard-to-reach, hard-to-teach young people going to them rather than them Mm. coming to us? So I think he probably saw in me that I was looking at delivering the curriculum in a different way. So bringing the curriculum to the learner rather. I mean, for many of the young people out there uh, who were disengaged, my view always was that school had failed them because they had disengaged. So where had we as professional teachers gone wrong? Uh, And one of the early ideas which I had brought to him was, you know, a community-based program where we would go to the young people rather than try and drag the young people in through the doors of the school again. We did an enormous amount of work, which he led, with parents as well. So it became parents, school and the young people. And he led on that, and that was an idea that him and I thought about. And he led on that, and it was hugely successful. Because for many of the parents, they had been disengaged in school. So all we had with their young men and young women sons and daughters was more the same 
Yeah. Uh, so it was a new way of looking at the way we deliver education. Of course, nowadays, if you look at that now, 25 years on, community-based education is up there. Yeah. And, and apprenticeships are up there now, mm-hmm. uh, which is great to see. So I think what he saw in me was a different way of looking looking at it through a different lens and probably a drive uh, and, and and I mean by that a vocational drive and a belief that if we did it the right way we actually could make a difference yeah. and I think that's probably why he spent more time with me and um, and where would I have been without him he was just amazing uh, and from him then I, I met other mentors as I evolved and changed and morphed I had other mentors offering different ways of looking at things when mm-hmm. I became a senior leader because when you become a senior leader the burden of responsibility on your shoulders is phenomenally mm-hmm. it's great when it's going well but at the end of the day you know, own it if it's not going well and the monkey's on your shoulder so you seek out then a different type of mentor who probably has had those experiences and I've been very lucky in two mentors that I've had along the way who are critical friends, but at the same time very supportive in getting me to look at it uh, in a different way. Because every organisation has its challenges. And, you know, being the chair of an organisation, never mind being a principal, can be a lonely job. Mm. Uh, because at the end of the day, you're carrying a lot of information. Uh, and at the end of the day, you're the leader of the organisation. So everybody will turn to the chair and say, well, what do you think? Mm. Um, So, yeah, there are challenging days as well. But one mentor I have at the minute, I have been with now for 10 years. And uh, it's a mature dialogue all around the non-executive role and all of that that goes with it. Yeah. Yeah. So the pressure's on. Things are maybe going wrong. Lots of challenges, maybe people question you, whatever that looks like for you. How do you personally deal with that? When you're backed up into, backed up against the wall, you know, what are some of your techniques or your, your yeah. strategies for dealing with that intense stress? As a younger leader, I probably would have uh, not been as good as sitting on it and letting it mull over. As, okay. a more, as a senior leader now, I have worked up certain strategies and one of them would be where I do not react on the spot to things. Uh, I've had to work really hard and I trust me, seriously hard at that. So uh, one of the strategies I would use is I'll get back to you on that. I'll get back to you on that. The sort of emails, right, I'm responding to that right now. And then you have it written and it's gone and you can't retrieve it. I would never do anything like that. So I have a tendency to go home, okay, plot out and map out what could go wrong, what has gone wrong. Is this a doomsday scenario? Will this look anyway better in the morning? So I would have a very scientific type of brain to actually work through Problems which at the time looked like a doomsday scenario, but actually weren't. Uh, I also, when I go home at night, I leave everything at the door, but I would be a reflector and a thinker. And the minute I feel 
I need to take certain actions, I would probably return then to the mentor or return to my colleagues on the board who are brilliant and sound out their views. I'm very good, I have to say, at taking on board the views of others because I don't have all the skills yeah. across all the competencies, but I, I, I am blessed to work with people who do. So I would wait. When I was a younger leader, I would have just rushed immediately. <laughs> but you mature because mm. once you've said it, you can't retrieve it. Mm. So the way I would deal with it is I don't respond. I say I'll get back to you on that. Then I would go home and walk the dog for two hours and um, things always seem easier after I've walked the dog. And I talk to the dog who can't, <laughs> can't talk back, but looks at me lovingly and sure, that's OK. Uh, yeah. And it's very important to get the work-life balance in there as well. Um, but yeah, I am good at deconstructing problems and putting them back together again. They remain a problem, uh, but it's about the strategy to actually get yourself out of the problem that counts. But, you know, there are problems where you put your hands on your head and you say, how am I getting out of this one? Mm. Or how are we getting out of this one? But if you work together in a team with a good team and your own head uh, has that patience to actually unpick it and deconstruct it and take the time to do it, I think the majority of problems can be overcome. You have a very, you have a very fascinating mind because... So your background's English and French. Yes. So your background is language, arts, yes. etc. But on this other hand, you have this very process-driven scientific brain. Yes. What is that all about? It's some left-handed. Uh, <laughs> well, well, yeah, that's in there. I get that, I would say, from my mother, who was a scientist. Okay. And, uh, you know, as young teenagers, two daughters coming in, she was very process-driven, working through problems. And I think my sister then went on to go down a scientific road, the complete opposite of me. But I think modelling on her behaviours and how she deconstructed things, because she was a senior female leader when there weren't too many about. Mm. Um, I think probably inculcated in me that scientific approach to working through problems. And we were very lucky, my sister and I, in that we were brought up in a home where my mother would have said, I don't want you to sit on the problem. I need you to bring it in. I mightn't like what you're about to say to me, but as a family, we'll go through it. Yeah. Uh, and that was really lucky because not all families have that. But certainly that scientific approach to deconstructing problems would have come from my mother. Definitely. Cool. Definitely. Yeah. From my mother. Whenever you talked earlier on about the importance it was of making the impact in a child's life. Okay. So park that. The other bit that's been going on throughout the chat so far is a lot of stuff from your family and how instrumental your family has been in shaping you into who you are today. And I don't know why this is off script, but it just came in my head. I think it was a, a Mother Teresa quote. Uh, it could be somebody else. But I just read it this week and she said, if you want to promote world peace, go home and love your family. Yes. What do you think of that? That's it. Talk to me. Uh, for me, you know, look, 
We were all teenage females and we all rebelled against home. And now, you know, I'll not be in at 12 o'clock. I'll stay as long as I like. That's part of life. Uh, but I have to say, I would have always turned back for home. We always turned back from home. And my sister and I always turned back from home. Now, we had a very firm upbringing where my mother was firm but fair. And my father was more of an easy touch. Uh, and so when mummy wouldn't give us what we wanted, we went to daddy and daddy would say, go to your mummy. Um, <laughs> what a wise man. <laughs> what a wise guy, yeah. Um, mummy was fair. Her expectations were high. Uh, but she encouraged dialogue and challenge that wasn't offensive because at the end of the day, she was your mother and he was your father. Uh, and when things went wrong in life, you always turned from home. Uh, even because your parents love you unconditionally. Um, and I, if you were to say to me what has been the most devastating, uh, had the most devastating effect on me in the last couple of years, it was the death of my mother. Uh, and I thought, you know, mummy had reached 90. Uh, she'd had a wonderful life. Her legacy was incredible, what she left her children and grandchildren. And then people would say to me, you know, Carmel, you were so lucky you had your mummy to 90. That made no odds to me. Yeah. 90, 50, she wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Uh, so for about the first couple of months, I sort of went on with what I was doing and saying, mummy had a good life and I still have to look after daddy. And then it was like a crash and burn moment. All of a sudden she wasn't there anymore. So I think in terms of when you come from a family that is tight knit, but challenging enough that you didn't get away with anything, I have to say. Um, the loss of that, um, the loss of that, you, you really never get over it. What you actually do is you manage the loss mm. and you come to terms with it. Um, but her death had a devastating impact because she was everything that my sister and I wanted to be. She was an incredibly skilled woman, highly articulate, highly intelligent, beautifully dressed, <laughs> but ruthless <laughs> professionally uh, with high expectation and incredible integrity. And she used to say, all I want for you and your sister is that you behave in life with integrity and, you know, you don't look down on anyone and you respect everyone for who they are. It was kind of harnessed to Christianity, but it really was, it's really the way we should live our lives. Mm. Uh, and she inculcated that in us. And one of the things she said is, don't ever get too big for your boots <laughs> because there will always be a coup to catch you on the way down. Yeah. Um, so family, very, very important. Now, there were days you sort of went, oh, mommy, give it a rest, you know, but look... <laughs> At the end of the day, I still we still have Daddy, and Daddy is doing well at 90. He had his 90th birthday this year. Incredible. Incredible. And, uh, yeah, when we were being reared, he was much softer than Mummy, uh, but he was wise enough to know Mummy would have the final decision. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, was I lucky in my upbringing? Yes. Have I seen families that were totally dysfunctional in, throughout my professional career? Wow, have I what? Mm. Um, uh, and so you look at what you have got and you say, how lucky am I to have had that? Yeah. Um, and I think that shapes who you are then. 
as you deal with other people and the respect and the mutual respect that you get up for other people that you're dealing with in, uh, in life. And one thing I saw in both of my parents was this incredible respect for other people, no matter who mm. they were. Uh, and my sister and I were very lucky to have that inculcated in us from a, an early age. And how lucky are we to have those qualities? Because you can be as bright as you like, Matt. You can have a men's IQ if you want, but if you don't treat people right and you can't be kind and you can't be compassionate and you don't have what is now uh, referred to as emotional intelligence, mm. then you have nothing. Yeah. Emotional intelligence needs to lead everything. Without it, doesn't matter how bright you are, if you mm. can't get on with people, um, then you're out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how bright you are. So, And I think emotional intelligence is up there now. Um, and it needs to be up there as a major priority, even for aspiring leaders coming through as well. How we treat people, you know, the end of the day, what do people say about us when we leave the room? Do they say she's horrible because she was rude to X or she treated everybody with respect, but at the end of the day made the decision? Because, you know, when you're in the role I'm in, in the end, you have to make very hard decisions yeah. and they're not going not everybody's going to like them, but you have to stand over them. Uh, so it's that blend of emotional intelligence with the capacity to make very, very hard decisions, which I have had to make in my career. Mm. And that's why we're leaders. That's yeah. why leaders are there to make the hard decisions. Cool. You talk about this amazing legacy your mum's left you. What legacy are you actively trying to build or trying to leave behind? With your own life? I think with my own life, uh, you know, I often say to myself, what do people say about Carmel McKinney when she leaves the room? You know, mm -hmm. that kind of thesis. What I'd like to leave behind is that I honestly try to make a difference to children and young people I work with to give them a chance in life that perhaps they wouldn't have had. Uh, and I believe that I have been successful at that. And also to in terms of dealing with the networks that I deal with, and they are many and varied, that people will say she was firm, she was fair, she was impartial, and she based decisions on evidence. Um, and, and that I was an effective and efficient leader. Uh, and hopefully, she says, keeping her fingers crossed, that's what they will say about me. Yeah. Uh, and as, you know for my friends and family that they just feel that I was a good friend not always in the good times because we all have bad times because you judge people at the end of the day when the chips are down don't you it's true uh, the real people stand up mm. uh, so hopefully I will be one of those people will be viewed like that cool we always end the interviews we've got four stock questions right okay. so we've done over 80 of these now and these are the questions we've asked every single person okay okay uh, answered, they're the big hitters we do them at the end for a reason <laughs> okay so the first one tell us about the most successful moment you think you've had in your life the most successful moment I have had in my life was when we went over to Buckingham Palace mm. and it was one of the last things that we did as a family before my mother passed away and it was to receive my OBE. Wow. And I'm not sure who was more delighted, my family or me. Uh, yeah, 
So that that was one of those moments where you say, I've obviously been really good in everything I've been doing <laughs> throughout my life. So yes, and because my mother had started to get ill at the time, yeah. there was the poignancy around it as well. So that's one. Um, successful moments in my life is probably where I succeeded in getting the job I have now. Yeah. And where I feel I've made a difference. Uh, and I obviously have uh, because of the major awards that I have won on merit. Uh, so they have been successful moments too. But you know what? On a personal level, a successful moment is when you're out on a Friday night in the Ari Galen having a drink with your friends and eating a bag of crisps and you say, you know what? That is a successful moment because that's me. Yeah. Awesome. You know, it's being yourself again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your favourite type of crisps? Cheese and onion, of course. Naturally. Any favourite brand? Potato, oh, naturally. Through and through. Hey. You're a good a poster woman and for the country. And a glass of cider and a glass of cider. So uh, <laughs> everybody needs those yeah. moments. Because when you're in a role like mine, you're nearly always on duty. Mm. And it's only sort of at the weekend when you sort of disappear or, you know, you go to Dublin shopping that you can be yourself. Because at the end of the day, you are the brand. Yeah. And everybody watches the actions. And if you do anything off kilter, well, hey, that's not so good for the brand. So those are successful moments when you can be yourself with people you love and people who love you. Mm. Not for your successes in life, but for who you are. Yeah. For who you are. Man, that's killer. Wow. Um, The flip side of that question is... What about the most challenging moment? Maybe you've already shared it, if not. I think the most challenging moment I probably have shared it was when my mother died. Yeah. Um, so how uh, did you go about overcoming that? I Well, what I did do was I was honest enough to say I'm not coping all that well. Mm. And um, I then went to Cruise, which is a wonderful organisation, perhaps I shouldn't be saying names here, uh, to assist me and help me to go on that journey of not recovery but acceptance Mm. um uh yeah that was that actually brought me to my knees surprisingly Mm. i thought that my scientific yeah processing but it was like somebody ripped my heart out um but you know i'm doing well and uh, what i have now done is flipped the loss of mummy into the incredible legacy that she has left. And every day I try to live that in what I do. Uh, and uh, I think she'd be very proud. I think so. Glad you know that. Yeah, you know, I think she'd be very proud. If you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for coffee, or uh, indeed a, a bag of cheese and onion crisps and a cider, who would you take and where would you take them? Yeah, that's... I have to tell you, man, that is a really, really, anybody in Northern Ireland. Uh, oh, my goodness, anywhere in Northern Ireland. Uh, well, first of all, it probably would be just to the pub, but <laughs> there are so many diverse people that I know um, taken to the pub. It probably would be somebody um, who is a principal of a school, uh, affecting change in learning in a different era to me. It wouldn't be anybody famous. Yeah. It wouldn't be a politician. And it wouldn't be a business person. 
because they're able to take themselves out. For a, yes. It would be somebody who is still at the cutting edge of making a difference in society through societal change in civic society. Yeah, that's the type of person I'd like to sit down and have a cup of tea with, a pint with, or a cup of coffee with. Any idea of this person with their boots on the ground? Any like school or area you'd be really interested in? Well, West in? Belfast. Yeah. Or West Belfast. If you look at West Belfast in terms of some of the very talented principals that there are there at the minute and the incredible results. I mean, I was educated by the Dominican nuns. <laughs> uh, and, you know, some of the schools in West Belfast, if not all of the schools in West Belfast, are doing incredible work. Uh in terms of and we don't by the way it's not about always ma uh, talking about results and outputs it's about in the all-round development of the young people in their charge so it would probably be either a few of them or one of them to actually sit down with and uh, tell me about it 15 years on what are you doing differently you know, sometimes, you know, underachievement, for example, in working class Protestant boys, we've been talking about that for 25 years. I would be really keen to know, well, what are we actually doing about yeah. it? So those are the kind of debates and discussions. Not a business person. They're very good at promoting themselves. <laughs> Not a politician. Very good. But somebody who is delivering it on cool. the ground. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, again, this is another way off scripter and we can cut this. Because uh, it's just popped into my head. If you were the principal of a school now, would you allow kids to have smartphones? No, absolutely not. Talk to me about that, because that's something I think about. Um, for me, I mean, there's, there's two strands to that. In terms of peer pressure, peer pressure is very, very different now. So a 14-year-old with a, let's say, a Nokia, whatever, <laughs> doesn't really get on the... On, I mean, the peer pressure is incredible nowadays. Yeah, in social media alone and trolling. So for me, no. Uh, the purpose of a phone is to contact your parent. So I, if I was a parent now, I certainly would be engaging with parents, if I was a principal now, with parents to say, look, it can interrupt a number of things. It can interrupt the capacity for the young person to engage in dialogue with other people. Because if you look at all our young people now, they are really, really good at going like this. Yeah. <laughs> you sit down on the dinner table and you say, put your phone away. Put your phone away. Put your phone away. It's a cultural piece. Yeah. Certainly if I was a principal, I would try to move towards it needs to be locked in a cupboard and you take it out at lunchtime or whatever it is. But, you know, parent power is very big as well. Uh, but not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody has all of these gadgets. So we need to be mindful that not everybody can afford them. Not everybody can afford the £300 boots. Yeah. And in fact, for, for some parents, they go out and take major loans to do it. So if I was a principal now, nowadays, yes, the, the smartphone would be in the cupboard and you also wouldn't be wearing makeup to school either. There you go. There you go. But... They're probably saying out there now, thank goodness she's not a principal. <laughs> well, that was a good wee one thrown in for free. Was, thank yeah, you. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final question, Carmel. That's a question we always end with. Let's say we can turn this uh, recording studio into some sort of time machine and we go back uh, a normal bass here, let's say, you know, to the 18-year-old version of yourself. Mm -hmm. You need a couple of minutes of her time. 
I'd what be a, wearing a British Airways outfit. <laughs> what advice would you give her? I would give what I would say is take your time, weigh up your options. You have your whole life in front of you. Um, think before you act. Reflect before you jump in. Um, but at 18, hey, all, all I wanted to do was go to the Students' Union and listen to Spandau Ballet. Uh, but if I was going back at the 18-year-old self, it would be reflect, think, and don't jump in and weigh up your options before you go down that road. But hopefully I did that. Well, no, I didn't really because I was going to British Airways. But <laughs> the 18-year-old self, that's what I would advise. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Carmel, thank you very much for your time. Not I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Matt. Cheers. That's us. That uh, is a wrap. Well, what do you think? Was it all right? One hour later. I don't believe Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And that flew in. I was like, I was looking at the time and I was like, there's no way we've spoken for that long. Like, yeah. That was so easy. Absolutely class. Carmel, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. That was an absolute delight to sit down with you. Really, really fun. And what an inspiration, what a life you've lived. And what a great example of just what's possible. And to be honest, what we can all do too, you know. I think something that I've started to realise doing these interviews, particularly with people like Carmel, is it's not necessarily complicated. It's not necessarily like confusing how you can do great things. It, it's just difficult. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's just hard and it's just being willing to put that work in and take care of the essentials, take care of the basics. So yeah, really enjoyed today. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks so much for making it all the way through to the end. Also want to give a big thank you to Fleet Financial for commissioning this mini-series. Really helps us get connected to people that we wouldn't otherwise have known about, people just like Carmel. And also helps us to fund the show so we can continue to do it, so we can make it better, so we can spend more time on it, but also invest in the future of it and try to reach new listeners, you know, get the good word out there, all that good stuff. Thank you very, very much to all of you who are a part of the Producers Club. Best of Belfast is a crowdfunded show, so we rely on the support of local businesses. We rely on the support of listeners just like you to help keep the show going and growing. Oh, Going and growing, that might be my new thing. I might, you're going to hear me saying that all the time. No, I, love finding, I love finding those wee phrases that just work. You know, keep the show going and growing. There you go. But in all seriousness, if you are a part of the Producers Club, the group of listeners that support the show financially for as little as the price of a burrito every single month, I got to say thank you so, so much for all of your support. It's a small community of people. We're trying to grow that this year. It's really important for us as a business, as a project that we grow this. Ultimately, listener support will determine how long the podcast goes and what we can continue to do with Best of Belfast. So if you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you really love it and you feel like you want to give back in some way, you can head to bestofbelfast.org. There's loads of different options available. You can sign up for a monthly thing so you can get invited to live podcasts and get special gifts and perks and all that good stuff. You can make a one-time contribution if that's your deal. Like, we're trying to make it easy for you. We'd love to hear from you. We're on a mission to try to change the negative narratives of Northern Ireland. We're trying to do that through storytelling, through honest conversations, just like the one you've heard. If there's any way at all you can help us do that, please reach out. And look, the show's going to be free. The show will always be free for everyone. If you don't have the financial means to support it, that's absolutely cool. Please keep enjoying it. We love doing it. We love making it. We're so chuffed that you enjoy it too. And if you would like to reach out for any reason at all, even if it is just to have the crack, introduce yourself, say, look, mate, I've been listening for six months and I've never even told you. Look, my name's Bob, whatever it is. Email inbox is always open. It's matthew at bestofbelfast.org. Or if you fancy, you can do the wee contact form on the website. 
So yeah, other than that, guys, just want to say thank you very much. Really, really appreciate it. My name is Matthew Thompson. This is Best of Belfast. And until next Monday morning, all the very best.